you think about that paradigm, we have someone who's a subject matter expert and quite skilled, well, they're excelling and it seems very logical. Oh, well, this person's doing such a great job. Let's promote them. Many times that's a very natural path for someone's mm. progression. And so now they find themselves in a position of authority leading a team, but in reality, they never were built intrinsically to do that. And organizations mm. don't collectively do a great job with training and cultivating leadership, period. to KBcast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. So, Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I know that you and I have spoken in the past. I see a lot of your content online on LinkedIn. Uh, it's very valuable and I think one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the show is because you are very honest in how you think. And I believe that we need more people to bring a lot more honesty to the industry and you have a level of integrity that I really appreciate. So thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm really keen today to dive into some of our questions around leadership. But before we do that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you please walk our listeners through where you started to where you are now? All right, I would love to. And thank you for having me. I totally appreciate it. You said some very nice things about me. I will try to live up to those expectations. Let's hope. Okay, here we go. <laughs> um, I started my journey um, in software development. So that's what I did for about three years. I hated it. I thought it was the worst thing in the history of things. It was, oh and I was bad, right? But I remember my first, my first, my second week of training, and I was sitting in the training course, and this was my first job. And I'm like, oh, what am I doing? Like, why, why did I do this? I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have gotten a degree in 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 the area I did. I shouldn't be just doing software development. So it was kind of random, but yeah. So I did that for three years, obviously. Uh, and then I decided to do a shift. I applied for the FBI, so Federal Bureau of Investigation, as a special agent. Special agents, these are the people you see uh, on TV, movies, mm -hmm. with guns, arresting people, doing all those crazy cool things. Uh, that's what I was doing for about 14 years. I started in LA, and then I shifted into uh, Washington, D.C., and then eventually... I transitioned into Atlanta, Georgia. That's where I'm at today. Mm -hmm. Most of my time in the FBI was spent as a cyber agent, which basically means I would investigate cyber-related activity, principally criminal, but I also dabbled in nation-state investigations as well. So then I left the bureau. I went into the private sector, joined a small startup called DevCon, and then I left that startup, joined another one called Expanse, and then Expanse was recently acquired by Palo Alto Networks, and that's where I am today. And with Palo Alto, I am the head of attack surface analysis. Bam! I did it. Wow. <laughs> Can we just go back a step? What did you hate most about software development? See, I just love how honest you are. You're like, oh my God, that was like the worst thing in the world. <laughs> it, it was the lack of human interaction. And that aspect of software development, I didn't really think about. When I was in college, I would do coding for about, you know, four or five hours, maybe a week. And then it dawned on me when I'm sitting there, oh, they want me to do this 40 to 50 hours a week. Like I just, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. Lack of the human interaction. And I, I that's what I struggled with. 
candidly. I love the creativity component, being able to create something, uh, make something functional. So I love that aspect, but it was really just kind of the silo nature sometimes a job can entail. I totally hear what you're saying in terms of the limited human interaction. And so how, what was the sort of segue then into doing the FBI stuff? Like how did that come around? Considering you were in quite a technical role with not a lot of human interaction, how, how did that pathway look for you? Uh, let's see. Um, I was watching movies and TV shows <laughs> since I was a young boy. And I thought well, that looks super cool. And it was always a dream of mine to do something like that. I put in for my application when I realized I did not want to be a software developer. The FBI basically established that, oh, I need more time to develop in a professional capacity. So I patiently waited and then I continued to apply. It was kind of interesting. One of the stories I shared to other people is I was able to get in principally because of, oh, I say principally, in part due to the fact that I was persistent. So I, I applied, I called in a number of times and I called in enough. This was the, the application <laughs> takes a long time. So at the time, when you apply, you go through phase one and phase one was an aptitude test and I passed. And then there was a long wait and the wait was like two years. And oh so during God. that time I kept calling back. And so I called in enough that closer to the end of my journey in the application process, the applicant recruiter picked up and she recognized me. And she was just like, oh, hey, or she was actually, a, I think she was a coordinator. She wasn't the recruiter, she was a coordinator. She recognized me and she's like, hey, you sound familiar. And I'm like, oh, well, I've called in like six months ago and I'm probably that six months before and probably that six months before. And she was just like, you know what? I remember, yes. She's like, do me a favor, call back next week. And I'm like, okay. So then I call back the following week and she's like, oh, guess what? You're going to phase two. And I was like, super elated. I'm like, how, what happened? She goes, I just simply put your application on top of the pile. And so when oh the gosh. recruiter saw it, she then realized you're a good fit. And then you got invited to go to phase two. So that's, that's what happened. And if I never, wow. and I asked her, I asked her, does anyone else do what I did? And she was like, no, honestly. And this was in Dallas, Texas. She was, I've been doing this for how many years? She says, rarely, if any, have anybody's done what you're doing in terms of being that persistent. And it wasn't annoying. I wasn't calling every week, right? But I called enough to basically cause her to remember who I was, and that helped. Wow, that's amazing. I was going to ask, like, how many times were you calling? But you said, like, <laughs> maybe four times in two years. It's not too bad. I mean, exactly, that's a pretty exactly. long process to wait. Two years just to get to the next round. That, that You know, it, it, it doesn't seem like it's that long, but it was forever. Right? Yeah, it feels <laughs> like think about ages. The, it does. Think about this because it was a job I didn't love. I hated and so I had to wait during that time. And each time I called, I was super excited. And I was like ex anticipating they're going to call me today, right? Why would they? Oh, they're going to call me tomorrow. You, you don't know. There's not like a tracking mechanism to go log in and see where am I in the queue. But oh uh, and, and this was, mind you, this was a little while ago. This wasn't like a year ago. This was back when the internet really wasn't as ubiquitous as it is today. I'm a little bit older. Uh, so anyway, it just was a different time. So I have to ask, is the FBI in real life the same as the movies? Uh, 100% yes. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> there is some parallel, but what the movies and TV shows do not capture is just a sheer volume of paperwork. 
There's mm-hmm. so much paperwork and there's so much oversight. That's another thing that when I watched movies and TV shows after I joined the FBI, they make it look so easy to do something. But in reality, there's a lot of oversight to ensure that there's never an abuse of power. And that was something that movies and TV shows never really capture, but it's really quite paramount in that form of law enforcement because there's so much authority given to the FBI in the US at least. Mm. So there's a lot of checks and balances internally. Yeah, and I guess like showing paperwork on a show isn't that exciting, right? No, it's not. Right? <laughs> it's not at all. <laughs> uh, no, really appreciate that. So I guess because you have such an interesting journey, I'm really keen to talk more about leadership. So can you talk me through your thoughts in the cyber arena when it comes to leadership? Like what's your viewpoint on the space as you're seeing it today? So my I thank you for asking me about uh, leadership, and it's one of the things I'm really most passionate about. Leadership is a necessity. Having a strong leader makes or breaks a security team, period. There's a lot of thought put in to hiring people who are very technical, who are very proficient at the craft, and I understand that methodology and the mentality, but sometimes those individuals aren't the best at galvanizing a group of individuals around a cause. When you're missing that element, it's hard to motivate people. It's hard to basically get people to do something that they may not intrinsically want to do. And that is one of the things that's so pivotal about having a strong leader is he or she will then unlock the capability to really bring everyone together in a cohesive capacity and in a motivated state. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, this is where it gets really interesting, right? So you spoke before about being super technical. Like, that's not... I guess it's it's important, but it's not needed. But then I think that there's sort of two sides to the story here. Well, some people will value that 100% and some people don't. Uh, and I think that... I want to ask, like, why, why do you think people value that? And then I guess the second question to that would be um, are, are people... I guess there's oversight because, oh, that person's not technical, therefore they don't really get the buy-in that they deserve. I've seen that as well. I've seen both sides of that conversation in the sense of wanting somebody who's technical, and then I've seen it from the other side of the, what are the ramifications of bringing on someone who is overly technical? So I do feel that one of the reasons why we rely on that technical skill set, it's very intrinsic to everything else. Like you look at sports, many times you look at your best athlete, your best player, and you think intrinsically, oh, well, they might be, or they should be in theory, a good leader. And many times that's not the case. You even look at whatever you're doing today. Uh, if you're an accountant, if you're a mathematician, if you're a special agent with the FBI, Many times you're really skilled at that job and you're a very, very variable, almost to the point of being invaluable practitioner or maybe quite invaluable, but you're not built to lead people. I feel like that's in play when it comes to the technical aspects of cybersecurity. You have individuals that are brilliant tacticians and they might be able to technically navigate issues because of breadth of knowledge, the love of the work, etc. But then they don't spend the time to cultivate or hone in the skill on how to motivate and lead and guide people. And I feel like that generally is what happens. In addition, if you think about that paradigm, we have someone who's a subject matter expert and quite skilled, well, they're excelling and it seems very logical. Oh, well, this person's doing such a great job. Let's promote them. Many times that's a very natural path. 
for someone's mm. progression. And so now they find themselves in a position of authority leading a team, but in reality, they never were built intrinsically to do that. And organizations mm. don't collectively do a great job with training and cultivating leadership, period. So there's so many elements to this uh, this uh, question you brought up. I think I answered part of it. I might have gotten lost in my answer, to be honest with you, to hit all of it. But uh, that's kind of how I perceive where you have those technical individuals and how they get in those positions. I've seen it time and time again. When I was a software developer, I saw it there consistently. A lot of the best developers were then made managers. And again, they weren't intrinsically built to manage and they struggled. Yeah, so that's super interesting because I've spoken about this on my podcast with other interviewees before and some people have thought the same way you have thought, others perhaps don't. Um, and so my thought is, <clears throat> I think even now the industry's struggling because you've probably got people that were from a super technical role like systems engineer that have sort of come up through the ranks and then all of a sudden they're in quite a senior role, probably because there was no one else and so they were just like the default option because back then you know, it wasn't as common to be in these types of roles. Um, but now I feel like that's changing face a little bit in terms of you can still be a leader, but you don't have to be the super technical person anymore. But in your experience, would you say that it's a bit of a hard pill to swallow to say to someone, hey, you're really good super technical, but you shouldn't be a leader? <laughs> For them, maybe. Um, but I don't necessarily know if those individuals want to be leaders. I do wonder if many individuals who find themselves in that predicament are also trying to better themselves and promote and make more money and, and advance. Mm. And many organizations don't necessarily have a, a fully developed technical path allowing someone who is you know, a skilled subject matter expert or individual contributor to continue to promote within the organization. At some point, many are forced to jump into leadership or management. Yeah. And so I feel like that could be driving people in that path because there is no other option. So that's, that's what I perceive is at partly in play. But yes, I think if you have someone, and here's the thing, I think if you have someone who wants to lead and they're like very technical and they want to lead, that person probably is going to be open to learning, to communication, et cetera. They will actually probably be a good leader. Many of those individuals I've shared with you in the past, they didn't want to lead, but they wanted to make more money and they wanted to advance their career. Ah, and that was sort of the only path forward in, in terms exactly. of getting more money and getting more experience. Okay, so here's a question for you. In, in, just in your honest opinion, what do you believe makes a better leader? Being technical or being good at managing people? And I ask this because... I, I have heard multiple sides of the coin. Uh, I mean, I do agree with you to a certain level. I think it's also hard to manage people. It's not an easy skill set um, because you can't configure human beings, right? You, you can't code them and develop them in a way and they do the thing. And that's where I think people perhaps struggle with. You've got a, a human being that operates in a way that doesn't make sense because they have feelings and emotions. So I'm really keen to hear your view on this. Uh, I, I, I personally feel that you, you cannot, that for the, be the best you can be in a leadership capacity, you have to love people and you have to thrive in that environment. I do believe there's a technical aspect clearly to the role. Those like you, I would never advise somebody to promote their CFO into a CISO position. Right. Do not do that. If any executives listening, I was like, you know what? 
I think Bob and accounting should run our cybersecurity department. <laughs> no, Bob should not do that. Right? That is a very bad idea. My opinion is there's three elements when it comes to basically picking a CISO. I recently wrote an article about this. The very first element is demonstrates the proven ability to lead, period. First and foremost, they have to actually show you that they can lead. There's different techniques, but I'll just leave it at that for, and the different techniques to see that, but I'll leave it at that for the sake of this, for the sake of time. The second aspect embodies your organization's culture. You want someone that's in line with how your organization functions, not what you want it to be, not what you hope or aspire to be, but what it is today. Because one of the critical failings I've seen is when you hire somebody that's not in line with your company's culture, there's just isn't a natural fit. The third component and gets to the question regarding the technical aspect is this person needs to possess a deep technical proclivity, meaning they have to have that technical depth of knowledge that is in play, but it's listed in my opinion in those order in that order: leadership, cultural alignment with your organization, and technical proclivity. In that order, that's how you should evaluate your next CISO. Yeah, and I, like I said, it's it's a it's a hard it's it's hard to give a sort of definitive answer on that, right? And that's why I keep sort of going over it because it's you can't apply the same sort of rule, I guess, because everyone's different. So perhaps someone may be really good at leadership, but maybe they can go and, and start to learn the fundamentals or, or vice versa, or someone that is technical that can learn the leadership. So I guess it's going to depend on the individual and what that what their trajectory looks like and, and if they really want to do it. Because I guess if you really want to do something, you'll just do it, right? Kind of. I see it a little differently. And this is where maybe I stand not alone, but maybe more unique in my perspective when it comes to leadership. And just my opinion on more sort of leadership and manage versus management. But I do believe it's akin to let's look at let's look at someone's athletic ability. So let's look at LeBron James, an American basketball player who's extremely skilled at the craft of basketball. I could not be LeBron James. Like it's just not possible. I would like to be LeBron James. I don't have the physical attributes he does. I don't have his background, his natural talents. Mm. I don't have any of those things. But I have that desire. But here's the thing. I could be a better basketball player. So I think that's a great way to look at when it comes to leadership. I feel that there's people who could be better leaders. But if you want to be a great leader, you want to basically galvanize people. You really want to get people behind you to really, really impact an organization in a positive way. I do not feel that you can just create that. There's intrinsic Mm. abilities that we each have that allow us that predisposition. Now with athletic skills, easy to see, because we can see it, we can measure it. Leadership, much harder. And so that's my personal feeling when it comes to the more discussion around leadership and management. I would apply that to the conversation we're having today when it comes to cybersecurity. I also find that's true probably as well, like Bob in accounting, poor Bob, hopefully Bob's not listening from an accounting, hoping to become a cybersecurity (laughs) expert. But if you don't have that technical mindset, if it doesn't Mm. interest you, then you probably, I would probably, I would think Bob wouldn't even want to get in that arena because it's just like, ah, it's too much work. I don't want to think about those things. However, if Bob in accounting were to really want to get in cybersecurity, he can do that. Like he could get additional training. He could take some certifications. He could do all those things. I think that's quite possible. Um, yeah. But again, they have to have the underlining predisposition for it. Mm, yeah, that's sort of what I was getting at before in terms of you have to have that need. You probably would have seen that, I don't know, those questions floating around on LinkedIn, like are people born leaders or are they trained leaders? 
What are your thoughts on that? Um, so I think people are born with the predisposition to be a great leader. I think there are some people it's just easier to be leaders because example, they might be very charismatic. They might be quite intelligent. They might have these predispositions that allow them and others to look at them and say, that person's a leader. She's amazing. She's, she basically instills trust when she talks to me. She does these things that I'm most impressed by and what I think of a leader should uh, basically um, occupy in the space of, of leadership, right? Now, I think that person in particular, she can get better and become even a far greater leader, but she's gonna be born with that predisposition. I think others who maybe aren't her, so we'll say, we'll say Bob again in accounting, Bob isn't necessarily born the same way. However, Bob could become better, but will Bob ever reach those upper echelons? I don't think he has the predisposition to do so. So I think Bob could learn to become better at it, but never truly really embrace it and run with it the way somebody who has that predisposition to be a great leader has. I really love what you're saying because I often think that too. And I think that like people are born with it and I, and I, and agree to your point, like you obviously have to train it so you can get better at it, but you've already sort of, you've already, if you're born that way, you've got that head start um, and you can then develop it further versus someone who probably isn't born like that, that then has to, to train that way. Um, and it's going back to your uh, example before about LeBron James, like he's just LeBron James. So he was just born that way. And obviously he trains and he does all these other things to enhance his capability, but that he was just born that way. And so I think that, I think people perhaps get a bit upset when you say that, because some people just naturally aren't born leaders and they, then they do the training. Um, but I think that it doesn't mean that they, will not be good leaders. It just may not be like they'll be in the top percentage of, of leadership, the top percentage of leaders. Exactly. And that, that's my thought. I mean, I don't, I would never want to discourage anyone to become better. You should obviously become better in whatever you do. And so if you're a leader right now listening, thinking this guy's full of uh, crap, <laughs> this guy's full, <laughs> clean us up a little bit. This guy's Sorry, full you of... can swear. We can put <laughs> it as an explicit episode. <laughs> They're like, ooh, he said one word. He said crap. Uh, no, there's some people who might be like, no, I don't I believe what he's saying to be true, but I, I would challenge that person and say, I encourage you to become better to the point of proving me wrong, right? I would love to be proven wrong. I just haven't seen it myself. And I think time and time again, when I look at this more definitively, I really do feel there's an intrinsic skill set in leadership that we don't like talking about because it doesn't sound good, right? It, it's not mm -hmm. going to make a poster. No one's going to put a poster on motivation about you can be a leader only if you're born that way. Like that's not going to be a motivational quote you're going to hear. I get it. <laughs> so it's something people don't like hearing or like talking about, but I've not seen individuals who I felt that person's reclusive. That person has no ability to lead. There's no charisma there. I don't trust them at all. I feel like they're going to swindle me. And then all of a sudden do a 180 and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to follow this person in the battle. That, that doesn't happen. Right? Anyway, that's my opinion. No, I just, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, that's why I wanted to talk to you about this because I think that people aren't saying how it is. They're not just saying what they think. The honesty's there. Okay, so here's an interesting one for you. So talking about like the born leadership thing. So do you think it is better to be super technical to then train leadership or 
the Alita to then train the technical capability? I think depending on the position. So if yep. you're going to be an executive level, I so if you're asking me, Michael, structure this organization the way it should be run most optimally. At the executive level, because there's so many other aspects to that role, you're going to have to be able to communicate effectively with the board. You're going to have to be able to get people to believe what you're saying. And all that is oration skill, the ability to articulate clearly, etc. Many of those fall lines of that more generic leadership aspect. I think in that regard, you could then take that person who's a leader and train them to be more technical, but there has to be the understanding and they liked and love the leadership or the technical components as well. I think if you go down, you know, the hierarchy and you're looking at more of an entry level management position, then having that person be able to stop doing what they're doing, help Barbara out with pen testing to actually show her commands on a command line to walk her through that, that's a different skill set. So I think in that regard, you could then bring in someone who's more technical and then teach them more of the management aspects of the role. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. That's why I wanted to just clarify that as well. So um, I think it just goes back to, it ties back to everything we've been speaking about and just to get your view on that. So something that's interesting, last week I was speaking to a CFO and he is not by any stretch technical, very IT savvy at all. Then he told me that his head of IT reports into him. Uh, I was probably, I don't, that I, I do hear that. I, I haven't heard that for a while. And then my mind sort of went, well, you know, how is that head of IT really going to communicate to a CFO, like the importance of it? And to some degree, he was relatively more forthcoming in the sense of cybersecurity keeps me awake at night and IT is a, it's a massive thing I've got to put a lot of money into. But I still, I'm just not sure about that, that sort of, um, that model. What do you think about that? I think if you're a head of IT or you're a CISO, so chief information security officer, I think if you're any of these positions where you're the upmost, uh, the uppermost level in your organization when it comes to cybersecurity or information technology, you should definitely report into the board of directors or the mm -hmm. CEO. I think if you report to anyone else, there's going to be things lost in translation. There's going to be other complications, especially if you think about some of the other elements in play. Like, there could be situations where if you, like, I don't know your CFO friends, so I don't want to speak too ill of this person. Let's assume the generic. It's not Bob, by the way. <laughs> well, let's just, let's just do a generic CFO. And yeah. if I am the CISO reporting into the CFO, and I'm trying to explain something quite technical to this individual, and let's say he doesn't fully understand all the ramifications of the mistranslation, and then he doesn't understand also the key components that are critical, he misrepresents what I'm saying to the board or the CEO, yes. that creates so many problems. And I feel like in those situations, you definitely need that clear line. Any organization that has not realigned their CISO under the CEO or the board in my opinion, is at risk and a far greater risk for a data breach or a catastrophic cybersecurity event than those organizations who have made that alignment. So that alignment helps, from my perspective, insulate that organization because information is funneling to the top. And it also shows that that organization cares enough where they want to empower that CISO to be able to report that information directly from his or her mouth 
to the individuals who need to hear it. I absolutely agree with you because even just speaking to him for a little bit, I felt that some of the terminology was wrong and it's not his fault. It's not his area of expertise. So that's why I was almost confused as to why his head of IT were reporting to him um, because then it's like, then he's going to take the information. I mean, that's like me trying to communicate doctor terminology. I'm not a doctor. I get things wrong. So it's just, it doesn't make sense. So I, I, I was taken aback by that. But I was really curious to see as to why, I mean, I didn't go into the specifics as to why that was the case. It was just more so that I could sense that the terminology was already getting wrong. And I guess, like you said, it, it does open that up to vulnerability of potential breach or, or something not going well simply because there was not a strong communication line because you've got multiple people involved versus one person going direct to a CEO or a board. Exactly. I mean, it's one of those things. Maybe they're not incentivized to share this information for whatever reason. And so it's just so many complications. And I've played the game of telephone, even in a non-technical arena, and things get lost in translation. So complicate that by throwing some technical aspects, nomenclature, and arming someone who doesn't fully understand what they're saying. It's just a recipe for disaster. I was kind of, yeah, I was definitely getting that vibe, but I really didn't want to go down that route. I sort of just <laughs> left it at that. Uh, but then I guess I knew I was speaking to you, so I wanted to sort of raise that. So, Michael, from your point of view, where do you believe we sort of need significant uplift in the industry when it comes to leadership? I know that we've spoken quite significantly about your viewpoints on it, but I would love to sort of perhaps people listening can take some sort of tangible advice um, with them after they finish this interview. So my personal belief in what, if you're listening, what you can take away from this is empowering your team. And I'll talk about this for a little bit. If you think about if I asked you to build a house and I've only given you paper and staples, how good is your house, right? You're going to build for me. It, it's it's going to be pretty shite. Can I say that? <laughs> it's going to be a bad house basically, right? So it's one of these things that the house is going to be disastrous. And if I get mad at you and say, why did you build such a, a shite house? Well, you're, well, you've given me paper and staples. Like how do you, I need proper building materials. So one of the critical components of running any team, especially in cybersecurity is you have to empower your team, let them make good decisions. So going back to the analogy, I need you to build me a house then I need to basically trust you and let you go out and find me materials and say, okay, here's what you're gonna need and scope it out and work with you and funding, et cetera. But once they give you that ability, unlock those tools and that one major tool is my belief in you and instilling this in you, now you're more productive. You're more, you feel a greater sense of ownership. One of the things I find that, crit that critically cripples organizations, whether it's cybersecurity or otherwise, is when you micromanage. Because micromanage zaps that life out of people. The creativity's gone. I've been in situations where I've been micro, in case you can't hear my voice, I've been in situations where I've been micromanaged and I just lose motivation, complete and utter motivation. I'm like, whatever, I don't wanna do this anymore. And now I'm looking for another job, I'm disgruntled, I'm frustrated. It doesn't help morale on my team. It's really bad across the board. But if you empower a team, if you trust them, then all of a sudden it unlocks something that creativity, the spark. Now people are thinking outside the box. They feel bolder. When people want to create environments where people are honest, well, you are honest in environments where you feel empowered. Because now if you're my manager 
and I feel empowered and you're saying something that I feel is incorrect, I'm more prone to say, hey, I think you're wrong. That's gonna help you in the long term. This is what we should do collectively across the board is empower the people that we work with. It's really, really critical, especially in cybersecurity. So in your experience, would you say that security teams and practices are sort of missing out because the leadership capability perhaps just isn't there in some cases? And I, I and what I mean by that is perhaps the leadership is perhaps weaker and therefore the CISO can't effectively communicate. And then because they can't communicate, they then can't get enough funding and therefore they forgo the funding for their practice. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yes. But I think the consequence is deeper than funding. So in today's threat-laden landscape, collaboration is critical and it's what's needed. And developing those teams, like I just mentioned, and empowering the team is just one aspect of it. But when you build yep. a team, it's not just the internal team. It's developing deeper partnerships, building collaborations across industries, even spanning into the public sector, and also involving outside experts. That's really what we need in today's day and age when it comes to cybersecurity events. I do not have all the answers. I know you might disbelieve, it might be in disbelief, but it's true, I don't have all the answers and I never will. But if I build teams, other people will now have other answers I don't have answers to, including those outside my organization. If I bring in the right vendors, if I partner with others in the industry, if I create this environment of sharing, now all of a sudden I am enriching my knowledge and the knowledge of those around me, we can make far better decisions. But it's one of those things, so it runs far deeper than just merely funding. There's so many other consequences that are in play when you're not capitalizing on the leadership capability. Do you think it's gonna take a while until we see a maturation of the leadership getting better? Because you know all the things that we've discussed today, right? Like that, those are the, probably the reasons. Um, but do you think it'll be a while until we start to see um, more impact because the leadership is there, it's making things a little easier, people are more motivated and so on? I, I think so. I think it'll take some time. And like I said earlier in the interview, it's hard to see, right? It's so hard to see if, if you have a good mm. leader or not. If I'm an executive, I'm a CEO, and I'm looking at people around me, they're putting their best foot forward. Uh, I can't necessarily see how they're impacting their team. When they're complaining to me about issues they're dealing with, many times it's through their eyes and their eyes alone. So it's hard for to see. So I think it's, it's really hard for leaders to see others around them many times in their, their true natural habitat to be able to really make those decisions. Mm. So that to me, I think is quite complicated. So it's not that easy. It's one of those things I, I, I find it interesting because I've been in situations where I've been on a team, I see a bad manager, right? And I talk to my peers like, oh, she's horrible. And like, oh, I know, right? She's the worst. But we don't say anything to anyone else. We just say it amongst ourselves. So then no one knows how bad she is. But when I've been in meetings with these individuals, they manage up really well. So from the, from the other perspective, like, oh my God, she's amazing. And I'm like, oh, she's horrible. But no one knows it. And I'm contributing to the problem because I'm not sharing my opinion. I'm sitting quiet thinking, ah, whatever, I'll just write it out. And so there's so many reasons why I think we're in this situation, Ren. But yeah, it's just hard to see, uh, I think many times from those individuals who are empowered to make these decisions and select people to pick the people who are actually good leaders. And that really can motivate a group of people as opposed to those who just do really well on an interview. 
So going back to your situation before, I've been in that situation as well. I think I may have said something. Uh, it didn't go well. So <laughs> why does that not surprise me? <laughs> uh, so then, what do you do? Do you not say something? And like you said, you're contributing then to the overall problem. Or then, do you say something? And then you're sort of in a really precarious situation. Like it's 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 not an easy thing to answer, right? Exactly. It's not, and I. You know, uh, I applaud your your boldness and be able to say something because I've been in situations where I've said something, and I've been in situations where I hadn't said something. Right? I, what was better? <laughs> every situation. What was a better outcome? Sorry uh, for the overall problem, not an outcome for you specifically. Well, it's a, oh geez, uh, the better situation overall. I don't even know to be honest with you. <laughs> I'd have to like really critically evaluate it. I can tell you, I felt better when I said something. Right, I made me feel like okay, I did something, but I don't know if it helped my career in those regards. Uh, but I felt better, at least in that moment. And in those other situations, you know, I, I feel like there's also a amount of boldness. Like Chrissy, you have a boldness to you that I envision that if you ever worked for me, I would trust that you're telling me what you're thinking. But not everyone has that level of courage to be able to stand up and say you're wrong. And and it's one of these things that as leaders, if you want to encourage that, you have to in, you have to give your people that freedom and let them know, please share your opinions with me. Here's why. If you don't share your opinion with me, then I'm not gonna be better and then collectively we're gonna struggle. And this is something I need so that we can all become better together. If your people believe this and you empower them to say this to you, there's a higher probability that Others will do what you did and stand up and say something like, I don't think this is right. But as a leader, you have to create that safe environment. It's hard to do and requires, back to what I was saying, a special type of person who can do this. Well, I think I was probably in your boat. I think I did say something and I am quite direct. And I think maybe people can misinterpret that with aggressiveness versus assertiveness. And I think that there may have been some disconnect uh, however, I perhaps the, the manager that I was working for at the time, this is going back a long time, maybe wasn't at the stage that they could be in a position where, like you said, like, please share your opinion with me so we can be better together. I think perhaps they took it personally. That makes sense. It's, and you can't when you're a leader, right? You're absolutely right. It's tough. I mean, I've been in a situation daily, daily is probably an exaggeration, weekly, where I'm on a call with somebody and they're sharing truth. They're speaking truth to power because I've created this environment and it's hard for me to sometimes to hear it, but I remind myself, no, this is good, right? It's good. I'm being corrected now so I can become better. So it is hard when you create that environment sometimes to hear the truth, but I've remind myself this collectively helps me and it helps this person share with their peers like, hey, you know what? I can tell Michael what I'm really thinking. Like it's okay because they'll they'll talk. Like if I reprimand someone for sharing their opinions, they will categorically share with one another. Like, oh my God, don't tell him anything because if you tell him, all these bad things are gonna happen to you, <laughs> right? Like I had I had one of my employees share with me something. I think it's, I found it a very flattering. I don't think he intended it this way, but he basically shared with me, he was thinking about leaving the company. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's talk it through. And we try to figure out if there's something we could do to keep him uh, you know, on the team. But he just said, no, I'm not really interested for a litany of reasons. And so I'm like, all right, well, thank you for sharing with me. What do you want to do from here? And he was kind of like, oh, well, I, I don't know. What do you have in mind? I go, well, I have no problem with keeping you in play 
Just let me know when you're ready to make that transition. I can help you. I know people in the area. Let me know when you're ready and we can collectively try to find an opportunity for you outside the organization. I didn't once then go to HR. I didn't once go to my manager and say, oh my God, this guy's leaving. So fast forward, he really appreciated the candid and open, honest feedback I was sharing with him. And the fact that I was very open and okay with him sharing this, he then later on shared with me, he goes, you know, it's funny, I appreciate what you've done. I told my dad I was gonna share this with you. And he was like, no, do not share that with your manager. You do not, no son, that is bad, bad. You don't tell him what you're thinking. You just do it, you don't tell him this. And he's like, ah, dad, I think I can trust him. And he's like, you know, I'm pleasantly surprised that dad was wrong in this situation and I could trust you. And so that was a huge compliment to me. Uh, but in, I'll be honest with you, I literally wanted to help him. Like I wasn't thinking like, oh my gosh, this is, he, he's a person. And he realized there wasn't a strong alignment in the organization we currently had in the team and his skills were better suited elsewhere. That's, um, yeah, that, that is rare to hear and find people like that in my experience as well. Um, so yeah, really, really appreciate you sharing that story. And um, I hope that people can take a lot of lessons that you've shared with us today. So I really do appreciate it. But Michael, if people perhaps have a question for you that I didn't ask you today, how can they go about reaching out to you? The best way to get hold of me is on LinkedIn. So you mentioned earlier in the podcast, I've, I spent a I spend a proportion amount of my time on LinkedIn, cultivating relationships. I find it extremely a wonderful networking tool. So that's probably the best way to get hold of me is on LinkedIn. Send me a connection request. Hit me up on a direct message. I'm relatively easy to find. That's how you could get hold of me. Well, really appreciate it again, Michael, and I can't wait to get you back. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. I love talking about leadership. And and before we went on, I, I, I to your listeners, I love your accent, right? <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, I love the Australian, the British, the South African. All these accents to me are so cool and I don't really hear them. So I'm just enamored every time someone's talking to me with other accents. I'm like, oh, please continue. Let's, let's have another conversation, <laughs> right? It sounds so cool. Well, I think I like the American accent as well. So, um... I don't know about the Aussie one though, but it's, I don't know. No one <laughs> likes their accent where they're from, right? No one likes it. That's awesome. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by kbi.media, the voice of cyber.